Ladies and gentlemen, this is, according to Callus, this is episode 325 coming out to you on January the 4th. It's a Wednesday book review day and uh, I made a uh, uh, error in my intro, so I'm tacking this on in the beginning just so we can get it time stamped and episode stamped. Thank you and please continue listening. Standing up in McKinney, this is According to Callus. Coming to you tonight with the Wednesday book review. That's right. This book is an education for our time. I am certain I referenced this more than once in the past. Uh, the reason why we're going to do this is I did not finish federalism yet. Um, had a little bit uh, less time to put forward to it than I planned. This was written by Josiah Bunting III with a foreword by William J. Bennett. Now, no matter what you think about Mr. Bennett, he was enough uh, impressed by this that he, you know, put some words in here. So the first thing I'm going to do is read you the jacket sleeve, but uh, and then when I'm done with that, I'm going to give you a brief uh, laydown on who this uh, guy is that wrote the book, and then we'll go and read a few excerpts, if you will. All right. John Adams, billionaire, industrialist, high-tech pioneer, war hero, lies dying of cancer at age 71. In the months before his death, Adams, through a series of letters to his lawyer, sketches out a blueprint for the ideal American college. He will endow the college with his entire fortune, ensuring that his visions will become a reality. Set in the high plains of Wyoming, the college will open its doors in the fall of 2000. This gives you an idea of how old this book is. Published by Renergy Publishing, for anybody that is curious. The new college will be radically unlike any college that exists today. Adams writes, the things that our country requires are simply not the things that our colleges are prepared to deliver. So let us have our shot. Now, keep in mind, this was written over 20, probably 25 years ago at this point. And the guy was already talking about an alternative economy, an alternative or parallel set of institutions. The purpose, or his purpose, to train virtuous and disinterested leaders for a nation that needs them desperately. Men and women whose bent is to command, to command not charter, or chatter, excuse me, to lead, not criticizes, and to serve, not to whine, and to give rather than calculate the cost. His observation is the founders had, for the most part, no degrees, as they had, for the most part, no university education. Yet, they thought more clearly, considered more self-reliantly, wrote more accurately than we, and built a great nation. His vision, the students will undertake an education as different from that offered by today's typical universities as it was from the founding fathers. And yet the new college will be as fiercely modern in its means as it is classic in its aims. Fighting to complete his vision before the cancer destroys his body, Adams works from the ground up, instructing how students will be chosen. No SAT scores will be allowed, but moral and physical courage are required. Describing the site for the college, structuring the campus, the calendar, the curriculum, and detailing everything from the daily schedule to recruiting teachers and mentors. Uh, 
Adams offers few details from his own life, yet gradually we realize that this college, for our time, has been powerfully shaped by Adams' life and times, in the life of a brilliant successes and devastating personal tragedy, bracketed by the national humbling in Vietnam, for which he was a Pentagon policy planner, and the triumphs of the computer revolution that he helped launch. Adam's ideal is, finally, not just an education for our time, but an education for all time, recreating the classical idea of character, intellect, and action that America must rediscover to succeed or succeed in the new century. Okay, so the author is Major General Josiah Bunting III. He was the superintendent of VMI, that's Virginia Military Institute, a Rhodes Scholar. He'd worked extensively in both secondary and higher education, having taught at West Point, served as the headmaster at Lawrenceville School, and had been the president of Hamden Sydney College and Briarcliff College. He is also the author of three books, including The Lionheads, voted one of Time Magazine's 10 Best Novels of the Year. General Bunting lives with his family in Lexington, Virginia. Now, I will tell you that uh, I suspect that this is uh, age interestingly, if you will. Uh, (laughs) The book is set place, I guess, in uh, 1998. It was actually printed in 1998. So that explains that. Um, Let me go here to a few excerpts here that might be interesting. Well, let's just start on page three here. I think it's interesting. I mean, it sets the stage, if you will. And uh, then we'll back up to the explanatory note. Okay. Um, He believed that the sky had a moral function and that contemplating it induced wonder, a sense of possibility without limit and inspiration. And he believed that on the high plains, scoured clean beneath the unbordered canopy of the sky, an American might still dream largely and uncynically. In one of his final notes, he left an instruction that the daily curriculum require and guard zealously a time and an hour, at least, daily of contemplative solitude. It should be outside for all but the worst months of the year, and the students are to have no books with them when they are alone for such times. He talked often of solitude and silence, and he noted our inability to enjoy even what few moments of solitude some accident might have given us, for fear someone might be gaining us, or that we might drop out of some loop or another. I think he had seen a man standing on the prairie talking into a cell phone. It was like a French gunboat firing into the Continent, where had he read that? An act, when you stop to think about it, pitiable and absurd. We are, he said, conditioned to feel guilt at being alone. So, that's the opening paragraph. Now I'm going to go back to the explanatory note. And... 
This is from General Bunting, if you will. I am pleased to set before the reader the description of the new American college. Groundbreaking is only a few weeks off, and the funds are fully committed, and the school will enroll its first class, called a cohort in the language of the place. In the fall of the year 2000, my involvement is an odd story. For three years, I've worked at VMI, the, Vilita- the Virginia Military Institute, where we've worked to sustain our way to education while complying with the 1996 Supreme Court mm, opinion that we enroll female as well as male cadets. But earlier this year, a stranger called me from Chicago. He told me he was the chairman of a board of a new college in Wyoming, and he asked whether I would consider joining the board. I asked for, for more information. Within three weeks, I received almost 400 pages of typescript describing every aspect of the college. With the typescript came an explanatory note from a Mr. Parkman. You will be the only academic person on our board, at least at the beginning. The founder did not like academics, or rather thought them most, Ill, most of them ill-suited for the kind of education he had in mind. I mentioned your name to him only 10 days before he died. He had no idea who you were, but when I mentioned VMI, he said, Yes, that's good. The papers attached are copies of his instructions to me. They consist mainly of five long chapters about different aspects of the college, but there are also a few letters, usually written to accompany the chapters he had finished them. For the sake of order and chronology, chronology, excuse me, (laughs) I've enclosed my own brief responses. The man's name was John Adams, and you have no doubt read about his gift in the New York Times. It is, by a wide margin, the largest ever made to American college, $985 million. Read through the papers, won't you, to inform yourself about our project. It occurs to me that you might want to publish them. We hold the copyright. It would be certainly useful to the college. Do so in the spirit moves you. We can talk about it in our May meeting. It will be held in Douglas, Wyoming, close to the site in the foothills of the Laramies. Mr. Adams' initial call... To me, it was preemptory, as my call and this letter is to you. That is not often how the best things get done. He needed a tax lawyer. He had once used our firm for other purposes, so he wrote me. Now our board needs what Adams once called a so-called educator, <laughs> so I've written you. But I sense this kind of work may appeal to you. I look forward to working with you. The Adams Foundation will pay your expenses, of course, and would obviously underwrite the costs associated with editing and publishing these papers. So, this uh, then goes on to just kind of talk about who Mr. John Adams was and how this uh, went about. So, I gotta, I gotta say that, uh, What is interesting to me is we, as a culture, have decided that every child must go to college. We've diluted the value of college. In fact, we have lowered the requirements to get into college so low that, at least within the realm of possibility, every person can go to college. And the question I have always brought up is, what good is that? Is it not possible that by diluting it, by lowering it so much that you are going to, in fact, make it less valuable, less unique, less important? 
Well, that's kind of what's happened. I mean, we teach STEM to people that have no business dealing with STEM. STEM is not for everybody. I mean, you can shove a square peg through a round hole if you make the square peg small enough that it fits through that round hole. But is that necessarily the best use for that square peg? I, I gather not. I, I, I suspect that we'll find after we have done this that we're going to have a bunch of people that have grown up with a bunch of useless information that don't know how to take care of themselves. They're not capable of operating in an environment that requires them to think for themselves. They're going to fail, and when they do fail, they will be crushed and seem as if their life is over since most of these young people have never, ever had to face defeat or failure. And we as parents, we're somewhat guilty of this as we have um, gone along with this, right? We have pressed the idea that failure is not an option. and We've done everything we could to prevent our children failing. And now we pay the consequences. So I want to jump forward here. This is page 141. It's under the title, what should they learn? Now there's more than, uh, one passage in here that's, I think, uh, interesting or useful, but I am going to just kind of give some bullet points and how this works out. So he's talking about virtues that the college community in the manifold activities that may cultivate and strengthen and perhaps even instill. They are readily linked to the virtues Pericles imputes to his idealized Athenians. Unselfconscious moral courage, self-forgetfulness and self-mastery, indifference to material success and to things, in quotes, fierce patriotism, willingness to assume responsibility without calculation of risk or reward, intellectual self-reliance, independence of judgment, retention of lifelong sense of wonder, magnanimity, liberality, generosity, Physical hardihood and resistance to fatigue. Now Pericles exhorts his citizens to fix their attention on the greatness of their city and to fall in love with her. No doubt as disinterested citizens, they may diagnose the flaws and ills, but we will work to correct them. They will not allow the age we live in to make us cynical. What's interesting to me is when I read this so long ago, I couldn't help but think this related to how most Texans feel about Texas. They're very proud of Texas. They, they see the value that being a Texan brings to the copy or to their lives, I should say. Now, the author also talks about um, proportions in the curriculum. And he doesn't really <laughs> list an explanation per se, but there's courses that would fall under them. So the major field of topics or, or study, if you will, he wanted 30% to be the history, 20% foreign languages, 10% to mathematics, science, philosophy, theology, 
deontology. And when I say that, it's 10% for math, 10% for science, 10% for the philosophy, theology, and deontology. 10% composition and rhetoric, 5% to imaginative literature, and 5% to music and fine arts. They should suggest the numbers of courses taken. That was his idea, right? He wanted people in his college to learn about the Greek and Roman republics and then the Roman Empire. They should understand what went on there. I'm going to skip forward here. I'm trying to find the, I think the way I remember it was the best quote of the whole book. And I probably should have done us both a favor and looked it up ahead of time and marked it. But, you know, (laughs) why would you want to do that? All right. So the other thing I found interesting is to spend so much time in foreign languages. Now, I got to tell you, as an American, as a Yankee gringo, I kind of see that that is a shortcoming. I understand a little more Spanish than I can speak, which is not much to be said of that. But if I were to go and try and speak German or French or Russian, I would be absolutely lost and clueless. And I think that's one of the shortcomings of our success. As successful as America was and having everybody learn English, we failed to also keep up with the other languages that might be useful i mean now we're playing catch up going back and you know study chinese study japanese and korean and and that's all well and good but i think there's something to be said for having a group of people that are more than capable of speaking in multiple languages and that's something that you have to go back to an earlier age an earlier grade it becomes extremely difficult to learn languages as you get older. As far as I know, there's not a really good shortcut, contrary to you know everything that you see online. Uh, I, I know it can be done. I just I don't think it's a shortcut. I don't think it's as easy as it is sold to you. I know that if you do full immersion, you'll figure it out. You'll you'll get there and you'll be fine. And I suspect that uh, that's just the way it has to be done. Well, while I'm doing this, um, let's see. Oh, well, here we go. This isn't the quote I was looking for, but it is a little humor. Humorous to me, I should say. He's talking about the administration. We have prescribed or presumed to describe... (coughs) I'm sorry. Describe those things that might be a useful present for the college and pointed towards sources and candidates for the job as to the administration of itself. I am cherry of setting down expectations that in their failure to anticipate certain challenges to be answered and obstacles to overcome may prove irrelevant or indeed perhaps harmful. What is wanted is the administration of a capability, no more, no less. It would be idle not to recognize some effort will be needed to administer to the various and usual programs that the college will maintain, especially those that will connect students to interim obligations and arrange their terms abroad for language study. We'll see there. You talked about it already, including their year in military service. Again, interesting. So 
Everyone who helps administer the college must be a teacher. Interesting. All must take their places regularly in the tutorial instruction, the leading and moderating the seminars, and the refectory meal readings and lectures. It should be understood that the administrators served fixed terms, after which they will return to the academic and pedagogical duties. Pedagogical. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they will live in and around the villages and the form and should be engaged in the life of the college. There is no administrative building like computer buildings of the 1970s. So such places house contemporary dinosaurs, huge preponderous equipment that do little, but keep their leaders out of touch with the various, those they are charged to lead or help. Rather, the various administrative duties are to be quite literally spread among and around the various buildings the forum or the villages themselves. An efficient business officer, for example, needs only his laptop and a printer, his modem and a fax to discharge his duties and better when meetings are needed to have them in assembly rooms near the village refectories than in an administrative building on the central campus. The president himself should attach himself during the academic terms to different villages or occasionally hang his hat in the fine arts building or library if the founders or leaders of the largest American corporations can transact business at a dinner. And if Abraham Lincoln could probably say that a man's hat is in his office, then our president can do without the usual pompous equipages and portly ornate barricades of the anti-chambers, offices, and secretarial platoons, and the like. I cannot forbear adding that since the raising of monies will form no part of the president's duty, he will not have to entertain in order to extract those monies. I should perhaps add that the college will not bestow honorary degrees. Long ago, such places as VMI and the University of Virginia decided that transparent condensations like these would invariably confound and conflate the genuine achievement with political opportunism and the school's self-regarding opportunism that is both cheapening the honorific and exciting among papabili and unseemly desire for their recognition. There is a corollary in academic bureaucracy to Parkinson's law, the law that holds that the work that expands to fill the time available for it. The corollary is that the administration grows so as to create more work for the administrators to do, but not here, not in our college. So this has been a reoccurring theme. If you've paid attention to any of the criticisms that I've laid at the feet of the school districts, they spend an enormous amount of time and money building up their administrative offices, their administrative centers, without actually expanding the role of education and spending that time on their teachers and their students. And this was 25 years ago. It was accurately depicted as just that thing, particularly in the college setting. And the colleges have only got significantly worse since then. And I know I am not directly involved with the um, school district per se, but I hear and see things all the time that just support my thought process on this. So I'm going to quick pause here. I'm going to look up my favorite quote, and then we're going to wrap it up. I'll be right back. All right. So... Well, there are actually two sections I'm going to read. He talks about 
in some ways, should be our ideal. But today, the cultivation of the mind is all that elite universities care for. With the exception of athletic teams that are a form of big business that bring in money, we will be different. The college will demand our pupils be fit and prove it, and often. The instrument for attaining that fitness will be a taxing regime, exhilarating so, a physical culture, and we will, it would be idle to build our school where we are going to, on a rugged hotch of hill at the edge of American high plains, indeed our country's emptiest state, without using its resources to promote this purpose. The purpose will in turn compromises several others, and it is in their service that the first trustees and faculty should prepare for this aspect of our mission. The inclusion of what was once called a positive addiction to outdoor lives, outdoor recreations and sports of the kind of promote hardihood and sustain aerobic and muscular fitness. No student should be graduated that is not addicted to fitness and to earning and maintaining his fitness outdoors. The demonstration never to be forgotten that every student can overcome the most robust challenges to his physical abilities and courage and to his resolution in the face of long hardship in straightened circumstances. And he goes on to list out a number of other things here, but I want to just jump here for a second. The habit of comfort and confidence in being alone in remote places, the, and be able to shift for oneself in such circumstances, learning to live and work efficiently in times and circumstances of pain or danger and to ignore their solicitations, learning to function competently, productively, and usefully as a member of a team, learning the arts of self-defense, hunting, and fishing. Now I'm purposely skipping over some of this stuff because I think this book is just that good. You need to go read it. It was selling new 25 years ago for 25 bucks. I have no idea what it uh, sells for now, but I'll look it up on Amazon and post a link in the first comment of my post here. Um, And then he goes on. The Trinity of lying, stealing, and cheating. And that's common contemporary component plagiarizing. is placed on a raised pedestal of obliquity. Oh, obliquity. With special punishments reserved for their commission, most students will infer that other forms of contact that we would call unvirtuous and dishonorable are, well, not that bad, because I didn't actually cheat or lie about it. And he says, again, I'm not concerned about whether the culture... (coughs) The culture... (coughs) Sorry about that. We send our graduates is corrupt or whether it's dishonorable behavior continues to advance men and women in the culture. My concern is that we are forging so strong of an allegiance to the principles of honorable conduct that our students, that they will not be attracted to these advantages. They will not be willing to commit these acts. So he goes on. And again, I'm skipping over because I don't want to read it all. I want you to go buy this book. The understanding is measured will itself be demonstrated plainly as there is no advantage to cheating or even if it was possible. Supposing that one of our orientation courses, the student has to dismantle and then reconfigure in a prescribed way the engine of a Jeep. 
And supposing the success of the test depended only on the Jeep's performance immediately after the exercise. In, say, a 25-mile road test, how could the student cheat and where would it get him? He would have no idea if this test was going to involve the Jeep as opposed to, say, an old Ford or a Chevy pickup because he would not be assigned his vehicle until the moment before the test. Or, to use a more common example, suppose her work in the history of the Roman Republic, a requirement, incidentally, for all the students, demanded the er, preparation of an essay of eight or ten pages every three weeks. The essay would then be read aloud before a mentor or professor who knew the student well. Understanding in such venues cannot be counterfeited, and the lack of understanding, given the nature of our community and its purposes, could not be tolerated by the student any more than her mentor would tolerate it. So the whole idea here is putting out a real education, causing the students that are involved in this to understand that they can get far more out of actually doing what is required of them than trying to find a way around it. Now, the premise of this book and the good fiction that it is, is that there's a billionaire out there that was willing to dedicate his fortune to building good leaders, to preparing a cohort of new people to lead America into the future. Sadly, I don't know that any of those billionaires exist anymore. I don't see that we can look forward to that gracious gift coming upon us. However, that does leave other options. That does leave other ideas that come to mind. And just how might we be able to accomplish this in a much smaller scale? That's what comes to mind. So again, um, as always, if you found this uh, educational, entertaining, informative, or just plain fun, do me a favor. Subscribe, like, share, comment on the show. Let other people know that we're out here. Again, we're going to try and stick with this format this uh, year, uh, five episodes a week. We're going to do a local-orientated show on Mondays. Do our Texas slash Texas Tuesdays. Do some book reviews on Wednesday. Talk about a specific issue on Thursday and a potential solution or a different way of looking at things. And then Friday is going to be kind of a potpourri. Uh, I really like the idea of, you know, like five issues to pay attention to or five things to go look into. Um, We're also going to look at adding in a uh, second guest or perhaps a um an interview but those are going to take a little time to get those worked out like i said give me about five or six weeks and we'll see how that looks and uh again i thank you for joining me uh we are well over sixty thousand uh listens now i'm really excited to be into this next uh year uh we're going to pop up some videos on occasion from time to time just to kind of build this out and we can make a difference Uh, Much like I said earlier, can't save the country if we can't save our neighborhood. And every long trek starts with a single step. (laughs) If you can't see those platitudes for what they are, suggestions on how we can make the change, then perhaps you, uh, (laughs) 
you you need to listen to somebody else. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it that way. Oh, and uh, coming up on the uh, Thursday episode, I've got a couple of exciting announcements for things that I'm involved with. And I'll uh, add that in in the beginning of the program. Uh, until then, I will see you on the other side. Canceled by the big tech mafia, but inadvertently profiting from owning their stocks in a mutual fund or ETF. At two pillars, they believe that censorship is a form of violence and a business practice that does not promote human flourishing. In many cases, through their investigative screening process, they can help you divest from companies that are denying your God-given inalienable right to speak freely. Hey, patriots, Two Pillars believes it's time for conservatives to align their values and investments. Two Pillars is your place for impact investing in the parallel economy. Find out what's in your investment portfolio with a complimentary portfolio review. Contact them today to learn more. Call toll-free at 833-377-0051 or send an email to info at twopillarsam.com. That's info at T-W-O-pillarsam.com. Get started today. Advisory services are offered through Jacob and Boaz Asset Management, LLC, doing business as Two Pillars Asset Management or Two Pillars. A registered investment advisor in the states of Texas and California. Two Pillars is not endorsed by any government agency and is not engaged in the practice of law or tax advice.